This week on Policy, Guns and Money, Brendan Nicholson and Michael Shoebridge discuss the EU-China trade deal. After 35 rounds of negotiations, who is going to be the money that says, actually, looking back at why we started this and what we're getting, it's not worth doing? Dr Hung Le Tu speaks with Nicholas Koppel about the Myanmar coup. So there's no doubt about the scale and the nature of Aung San Suu Kyi's electoral victory. And Dr John Coyne and Tony McCormack discuss the impact of COVID-19 on ADF training. It demonstrated that the training that the Defence Forces have received has been absolutely superb. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. With me, Olivia Nelson. At the end of December 2020, the EU and China agreed in principle on a trade deal that would govern bilateral investment. Negotiations for the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment began in 2013, but the strategic environment has changed significantly since then. Brendan Nicholson and Michael Shoebridge weigh the merits of this agreement. Hello, Michael. The EU's trade deal with Beijing has had a very long gestation. It's now been signed and a great rush. What was the hurry and has the EU got a good deal? Well, you're right, Brendan. The China-EU investment agreement has had a longer gestation than any uh, animal on the planet. So uh, they agreed that they would do this thing back in 2012 and then they started negotiations in 2013 and they're up to the 35th round of negotiations in December last year, so seven years on, and they rapidly declared victory uh, closing apparently enormous gaps in the last few weeks. Uh, and there's some big obvious reasons why they did that. And some of those reasons don't look terribly attractive for sitting here in Canberra. What do you think they are, the main reasons? Well, I think the logic of them concluding the deal um, is like we saw with the Australia-China Free Trade Agreement. You know, long, long negotiation and after a while you just want the thing to end and nobody wants to say it's a bad idea because you've invested so much time and effort in it so you know after 35 rounds of negotiations who is going to be the bunny that says actually looking back at why we started this and what we're getting it's not worth doing but i think the rush to conclude it is more disturbing Uh, xi jinping got personally involved in the negotiations And so did Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. In fact, Merkel used her last time as president of the EU Council to conclude the negotiations in a hurry. And the the reason I think that the Europeans were so keen is they wanted to conclude this before a constructive US president took office that might have some views that maybe they would feel obliged to take into account because they made sense. Uh, That's a bad motive for the Europeans. And then Z, I think Z had some clear and simple reasons. And if you're sitting in Europe, Washington or Canberra, understanding those should have led you not to conclude the deal. I think his primary reason for wanting to conclude the deal at the end of 2020 was he wanted to create a fact on the ground that complicated European-US cooperation around China's economic, trade and human rights behaviour. 
and he's achieved exactly that. He's driven a giant wedge between Europe and America. So who is, who's got the most to gain from this deal? Z has, and even if you look at the terms of the deal, and they have yet to release translated text, but excerpts of it have come out, you hear Europeans who are trying to justify the outcome saying this is as good a deal as we could get. But the things they say they've achieved, China had already agreed to in other, uh, other venues and avenues than through this investment deal. Things like uh, joint venture uh, restrictions being lifted on electric vehicles. That's already happened. Healthcare access in a number of Chinese cities. That's already happened. And other uh, minor restrictions around foreign investment, that had already happened. And then the core, one of the core sticking points is around labour standards and forced labour, you know, very meaningful when it comes to Xinjiang. And that's, that's a whole area where there's a central problem in this deal. Look, during these negotiations, as you alluded to, there was concern in the EU about human rights abuses in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, and they seem to be getting worse. Has the EU lost an opportunity to pressure China over these abuses? Yes, they have. And this is something, interestingly, you know, when, when we say the EU and China have reached a deal, the negotiations have concluded and uh, the EU Council has agreed, but it's got to be ratified through the European Parliament. And you can hear plenty of voices from members of the European Parliament getting right into these problems you're talking about. So on uh, forced labour, this was a key point in the negotiations, and as I say, 35 rounds. But all that the EU has got is China saying they will make continued and sustained efforts towards ratifying the ILO conventions, which is, in law, that's a future promise or an agreement to agree which is entirely without value and without meaning. So what they've got is instead of getting a proper commitment with an implementation path, they've got a commitment for China to keep looking at the issue. And who thinks mm -hmm. that the Chinese are going to end forced labour in Xinjiang as a result of this agreement? Michael, there was a time when Australia believed its commerce with China was helping that nation pull its massive population out of poverty. That may well have been so, but now that we have this very close trade relationship, that appears to have given Beijing a massive hold over us. Uh, we signed a trade deal with China in 2015, and in 2014, President Xi addressed our parliament. But now China's imposed big duties on Australian exports, and it's clearly using trade as a weapon against us despite the agreement. Are there lessons there for the EU? Absolutely. There are absolute parallels there. Uh, in fact, when you, when you look at EU leaders saying how great this deal is that they've struck with Beijing, it reminds me of Tony Abbott talking so lovingly about the wonderful benefits that Australia was going to get out of our free trade agreement. And we know how that's worked out. As you say, China not feeling bound by any of those commitments in that binding international deal and coercing us across a range of sectors of the economy. But the Europeans can learn from their own experience. This is another of the most surprising things. Back in 2001, 
the EU was a strong supporter of China joining the WTO. And looking back at what they said at that time about China joining the WTO, they talked about uh, there was an important part of, of this because of the high standard of commitments given by China to open its economy to foreign imports, investors and businesses. China will be significantly more liberal than most existing World Trade Organization members and virtually all sectors will have good market access. Protection for intellectual property rights will be guaranteed in law. Well, none of that has happened. And in fact, many of those issues are apparently now at the heart of this new EU-China investment agreement. You have to wonder how many times the Chinese can make future promises and be taken at their word. Well, can China be relied on to keep its commitments? China can be relied on not to keep commitments uh, in areas we know all about, uh, intellectual property, access to uh, important sectors, information technology, telecommunications, uh, automotive manufacture when it comes to growing their own national champions. We know these things and we know that their national security review process is far more opaque, far more extensive and far more restrictive than regimes in countries like Australia that Beijing has been so critical of. So we know all these things and Europe knows all these things. They need to use the European Parliament to return to the vision they have for how the world works. And that's, that's not enabling the kind of abuses that we see in Xinjiang, the kind of aggressive intellectual property and a use of market power that we see out of Beijing. And in the weeks after this agreement was signed and these commitments were made about international standards, arrests of pro-democracy voices in places like Hong Kong. Given China's aggressive use of everything from trade to wolf warrior diplomacy, how should the nations of the world respond so they don't just get picked off one by one? Well, this is why it's such a constructive moment with a US president in the White House who is saying he wants to work with trusted partners and allies and we have a common agenda around some of the abuses and behaviours we see in China. So back to what we were talking about earlier, this is uniquely the wrong moment for the EU to be reaching this agreement with China and we get to see whether the European Parliament is going to assert its power and get the EU Commission uh, and the important partner nations to look at how China's changed since they started negotiating this deal back in 2013, early in Xi's tenure. China, Michael, has joined key international bodies, including the WTO and the, and the World Health Organization. Do you think it'll be content to be a member or will it want to dominate these organizations and others? Well, the best way of not meeting commitments you made is to join the international organisations that define those commitments and undermine what those commitments mean by subverting the organisations. That's the kind of behaviour we've seen with China in the WHO and that's what we're seeing in various international standards organisations. There's a big lesson here for the EU and for America and for countries in the Indo-Pacific like Japan, South Korea, India and Australia, which is we need to reinvest 
in these international bodies and standard-setting organisations. Because if we don't, then those rules and standards will be twisted into ones that uniquely advantage Chinese authoritarian state capitalism and disadvantage us. Michael, European nations, Britain, France and a couple of others, have indicated that they plan to play a greater strategic role in our region, including by having an increased naval presence here. How practical will that be and will it be important, will it be significant, will it make a difference? I think it's good news and it is important. It's far harder for a Chinese Coast Guard vessel to ram a Vietnamese naval vessel if it's got a German Navy sea rider on board than it is to ram it by itself, for example. Uh, and seeing actual European naval vessels asserting freedom of navigation is all good. But really, Europe's main power in the world comes through the kind of values that it promotes through things like trade and investment and through its economic power and its ability to exert political unity and work in partnership with countries like Australia and America. And that's what we need to see more of now. Thanks very much, Michael. Nicholas Koppel was Australian ambassador to Myanmar from 2015 until 2018. He speaks with Dr Hung Le Tu about the motivations behind the coup, the likelihood of the military holding new elections and international responses. Thank you, Nick, for joining us to discuss the gravely concerning developments in Myanmar. Um, So in November last year, you wrote a piece for ASPE's special series, the Indo-Pacific Election Polls, about the results of the elections in Myanmar, which showed strong support for the National League of Democracy. And you concluded that means that there is stronger base for reforms and keeping the military accountable. We were all very excited about um, the results, but uh, unexpectedly on the 1st of February, the day before the new parliament swearing in, the Tatmudo, which is military um, in Myanmar, citing that the election had been fraudulent and without actually um, concrete evidences, declared a year-long state of emergency and seize the power. We know that uh, Do Aung San Suu Kyi, as well as many members of the NLD and the civil society, have been detained since then. The situation has been really concerning since then. Subsequently, the military declared the martial law in some of the cities, had cut multiple times the telecommunication and internet, and the citizens had started the civil disobedience movement which now has transformed into a massive, massive protest uh, and unfortunately had accounted for some casualties. So the situation is moving very fast. Um, What can we expect next? Well, thank you for that introduction. In terms of what we can expect next, I'll go back to two points which I made in the paper for ASPE last November. One is that Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, had a resounding win. They won 83% of the conflict. And secondly, that that result is one which has been verified or has been uh, validated, if you like, by both many domestic Myanmar election observer groups plus many international observer groups, including highly respected ones such as the Carter Center. So there's no doubt about the scale and the nature of Aung San Suu Kyi's electoral victory. The second thing I made, point I made in that, paper was that 
suggested that the Tatmadaw continue, that's Myanmar's military, continue to have an unreasonable role and power under their constitution and that uh, it's time for that to be looked at. Well, it turns out that uh, they've used that power to overturn the legitimate elections. And in terms of what, where we go from here, it's difficult to say. But I don't think the people of Myanmar are going to suddenly go quiet, but nor do I think that the senior general, Min Aung Hlaing, is going to change his mind and um, get all the troops back into the barracks and hand over power back to Aung San Suu Kyi. So I expect there'll be a standoff for quite some time. Let's talk about uh, the general, uh, Min Aung Liang. What do we know about him and what do we need to know about him? Well, he's um, a man who's trained and brought up through their military system. It's a system which is um, a very closed one. They have their own training institutions and, and culture. They look after themselves. So it's an organization which has written which wrote the Constitution for 2008. And in that Constitution, they wrote that they have three responsibilities. One is for national security, and that's reasonable. But the other two are for national stability and national integrity. And national stability is what they consider to be the internal security of the country, which normally would fall to a, to a police force rather than to a military. And they have used that to justify stepping in whenever they feel that the civilian government is not uh, managing things to their liking. He is a very stubborn man. He's a man who is coming to the end of his career. He's turning 65 this year. Normal retirement age for the Commander-in-Chief is 60. Uh, it was specially extended to 65 to accommodate him. He's not a man who lets go of power easily, and there is a lot of speculation that behind all these recent actions, is his quest to become president of Myanmar. Yes, so there was speculation that he didn't take uh, sharing power very well and obviously the results of the November election came crushing uh, supporting NLD. So uh, I wonder what you know realistic negotiation ahead because obviously he would want to uh, have a new election uh, denying the results of the November 2020 elections which um, the citizens of Myanmar are also uh, disagreeing to and I hope international community also will uh, put their foot down because there had been many observers, international ob observers. So um, I just wonder um, to, to what extent, what kind of negotiation and what kind of uh, um, you know, arriving to what kind of power share uh, there could be in, in future because pure power in, uh, in the pure Tatmadaw hands will not be um, accepted by citizens as well as international community. But Tatmadaw also, as you say, and General uh, Myung Liang would not also and um, is not likely to uh, give in. Well, power sharing is enshrined in the constitution, and therein lies the problem. You know, the commander in chief appoints three of the ministers in the government. The commander in chief appoints the minister for defence, the minister for home affairs, which is responsible for police, and the minister for border affairs. So they're the three ministries under which. All the firearms which the, that the government has access to fall. So he has a monopoly on the coercive power of the state. So he also appoints 25% of the members of parliament from the ranks of the military. 
Now, that's under the 2000 Constitution, which was drafted by the military. So it involves the power sharing. It's not a full democracy, if you like. And I can well understand how the civilian leader feels very uncomfortable with that. But it's unreasonable for the military leader to be uncomfortable with that, given that it is the military drafted constitution. So if he proceeds with elections in a little over a year's time, I don't expect that the people of Myanmar will accept that there is a legitimate need to vote again. They firmly believe that they have uh, expressed their will and their will is for a national league for democracy government. And indeed, I would be surprised if the NLD party uh, contested the election. I would expect them to boycott it on the principle that they have already won the election in 2020 and that they should be uh, forming government without um, military interference. So let's go back a little bit about the international responses and whether the Tatmadaw cares about the international uh, responses at all, because uh, ASEAN, for its uh, own regional uh, re- statement, has issued quite fast on the day of the coup, with very you know moderate ASEAN language, but yet still um, there is a great deal of concern among all ASEAN countries, um, and Indonesia had been also leading the efforts to uh, talk to um, Tatmado and also moderate their. Uh, situation there. Um, the US have uh, expressed its uh, opinion as well as um, imposed sanctions. And now Australia um, is also quite invested uh, in in the issue given that Australian citizen Professor Sean Turner is uh, currently detained um, in Myanmar. Uh, the question is how um, do you think Tatmado be responsive to the legitimacy in the eyes of international society, as well as uh, what kind of further diplomatic measures can countries concerned and um, neighbouring countries apply to um, to this situation? Myanmar's military has um, experienced sanction for over, you know, not for five decades, but for a very long time. And at no point have they ever shown any adjustment in their policies or positions in response to those sanctions. To be sure, the sanctions have never been universal. That is to say, they're not the United Nations Security Council mandated sanctions. So all the neighboring countries of Myanmar, for example, haven't applied sanctions. And that means really Myanmar is capable of sourcing almost anything it wants. It's a little bit harder for, for weapons, of course, and military equipment, mm-hmm. but for most other things that can obtain it without too much difficulty by importing through a third country. So the, the path of sanctions is um, unlikely to uh, achieve an outcome because the Myanmar's military is pretty much impervious to foreign pressure. In relation to the efforts of ASEAN, uh, yes, they issued a statement early on, on, on the 1st of February, yes. in, as you say, fairly typical ASEAN language, they encourage the perseverance of dialogue, reconciliation, and the return to normalcy in accordance with the will of the people. But there's no condemnation of the military coup. There's no call for the release of um, political detainees, including Aung San Chi. Mm-hmm. There's recently been some toing and froing on Indonesia's attempts to find a consensus among parties on this. Initially, it was reported that, um, from a Reuters report, that Indonesia was urging the military to keep to its promise to hold elections, and that provoked quite a 
strong public reaction because they are opposed to more elections. Um, they believe the original ones are valid and should be upheld. But Indonesia has since stepped back from that, it's simply seeking a common Asian view, and that democratic transition should be pursued according to the wishes of Myanmar people. So the responses from the international community, they can issue strong statements, be targeted sanctions against military leaders as an expression of uh, disapproval and to try and put some personal pain onto to those privileged families. But I don't think they will achieve the ultimate objective, which is to get a back down from Takmador. Well, Australia is uh, in much the same situation as the rest of the world. That is to say, you can express its opinion and uh, condemn the actions there, but it's difficult to, to do much more than that without either hurting the people of Myanmar, which broad-based economic sanctions would do, or, or, you know, or, or cutting, for example, development assistance programs, which is also aimed at improving particularly the education and health outcomes in Myanmar. You know, they're fairly punitive measures, but the military the elite, they have their own hospitals, they have their own universities and schools for their families and staff. You know, they won't be touched by these measures. It's the people of Myanmar that might be affected by them. So I think policymakers need to consider the impact of their measures uh, before rushing in. There is more that can be done. And in particular, here I would look to the NGO community. Mm-hmm. I think the NGO community should really be stepping up their engagement with their counterparts in Myanmar because the NGO community are not dealing with the government, so they're not supporting any any of the military regime. But they're by supporting civil society through NGOs that uphold human rights, through uh, media organisations trying to get the message out there. I think there is um, a real role for them. Thank you, Nick, uh, for joining us. Thank you. COVID-19 has impacted most work environments and the Australian Defence Force military training is no exception. Dr John Coyne and Tony McCormack consider the challenges of implementing live, virtual and constructive training in the age of COVID-19. Hi, my name is John Coyne and I'm the head of the North and Australia's National Security Program here at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Today I'm joined by Tony McCormack, who's a visiting fellow with my program, but he's also uh, senior instructor with uh, ASPE's PD program. He comes to us with a very much a, a defence and national security background with, and I won't say how many decades experience, but a number of decades experience uh, in terms of the defence forces here in Australia. Um, welcome, Tony. Today, we are going to talk about training. And one of those things, both collective and individual training. In summation, and what's driving why we're talking on a podcast about training is this. Uh, for 18 months, defence has been here in Australia, has been under, and in fact, armed forces around the globe have been under immense pressure. In the Australian context, we've had bushfires that have upset the training regime and training pattern, um, drawn forces away. We've had COVID-19, first off, the operational demands of COVID-19, but probably just as importantly, uh, like the rest of the population, the inability to get together in a single location. That's also flowed on and affected the international environment and cooperation. So today what we're going to do is I'm going to speak to Tony. Um, We're going to talk about the impacts of this and then we're going to go through some of his recommendations in terms of a recent piece he wrote for the Aspie Strategist. Now, Tony, like right from the start, I I guess what I would like you to sort of give us a a broad outcome here. What do you think that this disruption of COVID-19 has done to three things? Individual training in terms of readiness, collective training, 
and probably, um, and you've got plenty of experience in this space, uh, defence diplomacy and defence cooperation overseas. John, thanks very much. It's great to join you here today. And you're right, the last 18 months have just been phenomenal in a lot of respects. And I guess if you can reach back and look when those um, fires started late in 2019, through the summer of 2019, and then we went into COVID, you can see the good and the bad that has come from it um, in regard to training. So if you look at the good, it demonstrated that the training that the Defence Forces have received has been absolutely superb. The way that they reacted very, very swiftly to go and do everything they did to support the bushfire fighters, to support the SES, to do that evacuation of Malakuta, to be able to fly those aircraft in in those um, terrible conditions, to set up field kitchens, to go and support everybody. It was just phenomenal. And then moving straight from that into COVID and working uh, with every state and territory in setting up uh, border checkpoints, assisting the police, assisting the medical staff, assisting uh, in hospitals. Uh, you know, Northern Tasmania was a great example there where the ADF stepped in straight away and worked with the hospital system. And now they're continuing that at the hotel quarantine. And it just shows that the strength of the ADF training has been there the whole time to be able to give you that support force that can just step in and do things. So that's the good part. The bad part is there's been a detrimental effect as well. Because this has absorbed a lot of the ADF personnel, it's absorbed a lot of their time, and in particular because of COVID, they haven't been able to get together to do that uh, individual or collective training. Their skills over that time have atrophied somewhat. And so that's the, the detrimental effect of what's happened. So yes, it comes with the good and the bad, but there's ways we can get out of it. In terms of that that atrophy, is it really in that collective space that that fifth generation, the high end capability that we ought to be more most concerned about, rather than say individual soldier skills? I'd say realistically, it's across the board because if you're out shooting your weapon, you have to do it continually to be able to keep hitting the target. And if you're not getting that individual experience, then you start drifting off the target and you're not uh, not as good as you were. But in the collective sense, you can look at that with every sporting team. You know that old mantra, the more you practice, the better you are at the game and the better you are at teamwork. It's exactly the same in the Defence Forces, that the more you work together, the better teamwork you create and the better you are at uh, the performance. Lena, let's, let's look at that from the example of um, something that the ADF has been very good at, which is defence diplomacy. Now, some um, big exercises, big operations that have continued. So we saw um, some naval exercises continue over the last 12 months. But in general, like how has this impacted on defence diplomacy? Well, you would have seen that um, because uh, the travel was stopped, a lot of the exercises couldn't go ahead. We had the Navy deploy uh, throughout the um, Southeast Asian region, then across to RIMPAC, and yet the sailors weren't allowed off the ships because of COVID restrictions. We had the Air Force do uh, a number of small deployments as well. And in particular, if you look at one of the key enabling forces, which is the uh, airlift force, you've got airlift crews who are effectively going from quarantine to complete a mission to back into quarantine again. And realistically, that's unsustainable. To get around it with uh, some of the exercises, they've been doing them virtually. And that is a good way to work together, to work with your colleagues overseas. And we saw that with some of the Navy. Uh, in fact, the three services did them. The Navy did some um, maritime exercises virtually. The Air Force did a virtual pitch black. And the Army did a virtual exercise with Indonesia. So that diplomacy has continued. 
But there's nothing like sitting down next to your colleague from overseas to um, share a meal, share a story and share that training together, share the experience. And there's going to be a lot of catch up, I'm assuming, over the next several years as as we start to get vaccines rolling out and we return to a, some sort of normality or point of normality. But there certainly will see a long term, I think, effect on that, don't you think, especially with some countries? I, I think... We'll never return to the way we were, and we've made a, a somewhat of a change, and we'll we'll embrace more of the live and the virtual and the constructive training as we move ahead. We'll still be able to get together, but we'll be able to work the the real training in with some of the uh, constructive and the virtual training to enhance all of our exercises. Now, the LVC. That this training you're talking about is very, very different than what I guess the general population is seeing, and it's, it's more than I guess the move to just virtual. So everybody has, as a result of um, in the private sector, public sector, as a result of COVID, the last twelve months has moved online. You know, we're using Teams, we're doing courses that way. Um, but what you're talking about here isn't just about uh, taking the regimental officers basic course for army. And doing it online, isn't it? It's it's much more complex than that. It's it's far more complex than that. What we're doing, or what we'd like to see with uh, live virtual and constructive training, is the live part is as it suggests. It's that human that's that's out there walking in the field, flying in the sky, or sailing in the ocean. They're the humans doing it. But then you can add in the virtual part of it. Somebody sitting in a simulator uh, can play in the game as well and work with that human that's out there. And so it reduces um, flying hours, it reduces steaming hours and enables you to then use some of the systems that we've got to uh, greater flexibility. And then your constructive, you add on top of that, is injecting computer inputs into it so that if you're flying your F-35 simulator, you can have inputs that are coming in from around the world uh, of enemy forces or friendly forces that you have to work with or uh, fight against. And it just adds that complexity in there to bring training to a completely new level. Now, not wanting to um, stir up our listeners about different services and the strengths of different services, you're a, you're an ex-full-time Royal Australian Air Force one-star. Um, so for you, there's two things that are near and dear to your heart, which is number one is air hours and making the maximum use of those. And the other one is um, Air Force is at that front end of fifth-generation warfare. It's got a, a range of new platforms coming in. Um, and without going into that classified piece, there's a whole heap of capabilities that you actually can't use in the real world. So, I mean, this is also... We, in some ways, your service or the Air Force was going this way anyway, wasn't it? Well, this really, it affects all of the services, uh, John, because when you start looking at it, yes, there's the expense. Um, it costs a lot to deploy people out into the field, to fly aircraft, to sail ships. So the expense is one of them. And every hour saved uh, from doing it for real is an hour and uh, dollars you can spend somewhere else or extend the life of a platform. You're right, there's the classification level because some of the new systems and weapons have classifications that uh, we don't want people to see um, how good they are or the tactics, techniques or procedures that are being done, how our forces fight uh, in the real case. And then, of course, there's the weapon systems themselves. Weapons are not only very expensive, but with the extended range weapons, uh, some of the ranges you can't uh, fire those weapons on because of the distances they need to travel. So the best way to actually test those and work with those weapons is in a live or virtual sense. Look, 
you know, the last point is, is of course, that from that great um, philosopher Socrates, you know, it's that Socratic question, and it's a difficult one. What ought one to do about all of this? Well, where could we start? We've already started working with LVC, so we just need to uh, move it along a little bit more. We need to take our simulators and our computer systems that we're purchasing for or defences purchasing for various projects and make sure that they're compatible with each other. Don't just buy your simulator for your system, but buy the simulator so that it works with everybody else. The second thing is the classification of the system. If you're working virtual or constructive, you're going to use a huge amount of bandwidth uh, and on classified systems. So potentially an entire new computer network needs to be set up um, that one, it protects the systems uh, with that classification and it prevents spillage. And of course, there's the, the worst thing that you could possibly have is that if you're on a network and exercising, somebody thinks it's real and uh, we need to protect against that. And I guess um, finally, the most important thing uh, about training and about the networks is they have to be really easy to join and to use because when you've got the soldier, the sailor or the aviator who wants to get onto a network, if it's really difficult and it's really hard, they're not going to do it. So it needs to be built for them and not the geek that designed it. Thanks, Tony. Look, um, this has been a really interesting session and the things that I really take away from it as we wrap up here is this. We've done reasonably well. The test of our training in terms of the ADF's training has shown that it can continue doing operations offshore. It can support uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief in the middle of a pandemic. It can help fight fires and support things. There needed to be a change now as a result of, and uh, we're heading that way anyway, in change in training requirements, and that we've got some challenges ahead of us, um, not the least of which... Um, despite all of the simulation and all the realism that we can put in virtual stuff, um, still what's important when it comes to defence diplomacy and inter-service cooperation are those opportunities for people to work together. So, look, Tony, thank you very much and thank you for joining us. Thanks, John. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.